If you knew you were starting a business that would generate you $1 million per year, how much would you be willing to invest today? Travis Ferris is a real estate entrepreneur, sales coach, team leader, public speaker, and community builder. He's done the work with over $500 million in total sales. Now he's welcoming you to the table. But make sure you're ready. The coffee is for closers only. The mindset's the one thing that's going to keep you going. Coffee for Closers is powered by Collab Agents. Here's your host, Travis Ferris. Hey, listeners, welcome to Coffee for Closers powered by Collab Agents. Today, I have an awesome guest I'm excited to share. Uh, we've been riffing for past couple years, uh, met in Colorado, and he's now in Florida, but he's kind of been across the nation. Crushing business just on all levels. So uh, real estate, real estate investments, uh, development, lending world, um, you name it, he's done it and mastered it. Um, he's been all across the board on the industry that we're in. So we're excited to kind of dive into some things. Um, but he has actually built up and sold off. So, you know, I want to say that uh, our special guest today is Mr. Mike Benton. We're super excited. Thank you, Mike, for tuning in and giving us your time, man. Awesome stuff, man. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on your show, man. Absolutely. Well, we're excited to dive into some of this. Um, but Mike has actually built up and exited some successful businesses in the midst of everything he's done. Um, you know, and I, I don't want to use the terminology, but built up, you know, a, a real estate flipping or investment company's proprietary software before it was cool, sold it off and, and is just, he's just doing it. So we're excited to, to hop in there. So again, Mike, thank you so much, man. Let's just start here. Let's just go. Um, we want to hear about your story, but like, walk us through like the building up and selling off real quick on this company. What was the company? What were you doing? What led you to, to build it up? And then we'll go after that. We'll go from the beginning. Sure, man. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, it, it might, might make sense to go through the uh, beginning first, but uh, I mean, if you want to start there, it's your, your call, man, your show. Let, let's let, actually, we will, we'll start here. Cause it's, you have a fascinating story. So um, take us through what got you into real estate, real estate investments led you to, to design and yeah. build out the software. And then we'll go from there. Yeah. Cause it, I mean, it, it plays a role, right? So um, I was in Florida in uh, 2000 and I decided to move to South Carolina in 2003. Um, got into uh, a business called Restaurant Associates, something you probably don't even know. I, uh, so it was a franchise and the job was to go out and sell, you know, basically get listings for restaurants and then, and then sell them. Hmm. And all we focused on is FF&E and then and or the property along with, you know, with the restaurant. So in that I learned, and I learned quite a bit in a short amount of time. I used my sales skills to just pound the phones and get listing appointments with restaurant owners in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, which is a target rich environment, right? Um, I don't know how many there were at that time, but there were quite a few. And built that up. I think at, at peak, we had over 50 listings. Um, this is, you know, we're gonna trend into like 2004 at that time. And what I found was, there was, speaking of stories, man, every restaurant owner has a story, man. And typically it involves a bottle of booze and a girl. It, okay. could, be a country, it could be a country song. <clears throat> um, but, you know, I'd get to the closing table, man, and it was, you know, we charged 10% at that time for our, our fee. And typically at the closing table would be a constant negotiation, constant soft story. And then on, on the listing side, you would sit down with these restaurant owners 
And I can empathize, but not empathize because typically, as you know, back then it was a big cash business. And if you don't show it, you can't sell it, right? So if you're not going to pay the IRS, then who's to say those numbers are real? So it was a little bit of a battle. It was great, you know, learning lessons. And at that time, I had started to look into some investment real estate and um, had an opportunity to potentially sell that franchise to the another franchise E who wanted an additional franchise. So I sold it. I think I bought the franchise for 10, sold it for 40. <laughs> so a great flip right there. But uh, in all seriousness, I mean, it wasn't a, a function of selling because I just, you know, thought I was going to have a good exit. It was a function of I just didn't like the business. So so I sold it and, you know, we made good money while I was selling real estate in that. But then I got a job with a, uh, a development company um, in Myrtle Beach called New Resorts. We had about three sales guys and, you know, I did, did what I always do, man, pound the phones. Um, the guy that owned the company was very good at lead generation at the time, owned a lot of good domain properties. And we were generating, I think at the time, 100, 200, 300 leads a day selling pre-construction and it was typically hit the phones. I had two cell phones at the time. I was doing mass email and just all day, every day on the phones selling these pre-construction condo buildings. If I had known what 30 under 30 was at the time, you know, I would have been in it because I think, you know, in 2004 or five, I can't remember the year, but I think we sold over me personally, over 60 million in condos alone. Um, but I, you know, I started learning what these guys were doing. You know, not only were they buying oceanfront lots and then pre-selling these renderings and then, you know, getting the construction loans, building them, but also they were buying older hotels and then doing what what are called condo conversions. So they would go ahead and create the master deed, et cetera. Um, and you know, we were making good money. So that's when we started buying some houses and fixing and flipping. And you know, we bought a house um, on the intercoastal, split the lot. So we had the house a lot. We split the lot, sold the lot, sold the house. So it started to, you know, mess around with that. But then, you know, one thing led to the next. And, you know, in 2005, I had an opportunity to buy an old apartment complex, you know, where I went to college, mm-hmm. Coastal Carolina University, um, where, we, where we bought 112 condo units and converted them to condos. And I took the, we bought it for 4.5. And I think the total sellout was over 12 million. So I took that building found a couple of partners, handled the, uh, found a contractor. We did the construction, we did the real estate sales and, you know, we finished that project and I think it was mid to late 2006. Um, but at that time I started to pick up some other different, you know, this is, this is a good learning lesson for those that are listening. Um, be careful who you partner with because, you know, at that time I was, you know, very successful and started to look at different projects and, you know, based on the project, I, I would do a good job pre-screening the projects, but not pre-screening the partners. Gotcha. If that makes sense. So um, also understanding, you know, your runway is important, right? Like what are your, what are the capital constraints on a project? What, looking at some downside, right? I'm 20, I think at that time I was 26, 27 years old. Had already made, you know, some pretty big money for that time, especially. Mm -hmm. And felt like instead of like, you know, put into the side, taking a break, being slow and steady. I was guns a blazing and picking up other development projects, thinking that, hey, this thing, this thing's got plenty of runway. And at that time, I, you know, bought an apartment complex in Birmingham, Alabama. I was in a 200 plus single family development, another 
12, 14 unit single family development, um, a 16 unit townhome development down by the beach. And then I remember June of 2007, our lead volume went from like a hundred a day to like nil. It wasn't like, Hey, it was like a, like the last two years where we've seen things kind of like trickle, you know, the rates have trickled up. Yes. They went up fast, but we're, they didn't go from two to seven in a day or a month. This is like leads went from a hundred a day to like one to five a day. So things just cut off. Yeah. Right. And at that time I knew things, you know, uh uh-oh. I I did the like, uh uh-oh, things are going to potentially go wrong here. So make a long story short, I um, called my dad, sat down with him, went over the, uh, my balance sheet with him, went over my cash flow, what I had available and had a bunch of private money at the time as well. And said, Hey, all right, what's the best, how can, what can I exit? As, what, what can I exit to get as much cash as possible as quickly as possible? It wasn't the function of how do I self, how do I protect myself and my family? It was how do I protect my investors, right? Now, hindsight being 2020, what a lot of guys did was protect themselves first, then file bankruptcy, and then that's it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't regret the decisions I made. I could have probably gotten some better legal advice at the time, but all the private investors got paid back. And then it was a function of, you know, we're talking lawsuits from getting foreclosed on, on big projects, right? Yeah. You know, my, my father-in-law, I remember he said, you know, hundred thousand million dollars, that's, you know, your problem, but five, 10, 15, 20 million, that's the bank's problem. And so that, that was a, uh, you know, interesting time in my life. And at the same time I was, you know, having my first child and only child, Savannah. So becoming a new dad, dealing with a, you know, the great recession, right. As, it, as it's called <clears throat> all at 30 years old and having everything crumble around me. Um, and what did I do? I just had to pick up the pieces. So, you know, when everything kind of got settled out, which took probably six to 12 months, at least it felt like 10 years. I think I had hair back then, but not really. <laughs> so uh, take us, take us through like, again, I think the one thing that I'm preaching a lot is everyone talking about the wins constantly. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm so fluffy. I'm so everything's so nice on social media and all that. No one's really talking about like, the pain, the suffering. Um, but I mean, like take us through, I mean, you're going through, you're going through it. Like, you know, you were jamming business at, at one level, printing money as, as people would say, yeah. and then the buck stopped. Like what was going through your mind and like, what was your day to day? Like, were you like step by step? Like, all right, just wake up, like walk us through like what you did to like get momentum back going and just compartmentalizing well, moving forward. I mean, you had really like when you when you're a father, you know this, right? Like, there's not a lot of time to to like stop and say, "Hey, like, poor old me." I've never the type that says like it's, you know, I'm going to blame somebody else per se. It was just like survive. Essentially, it was I went into complete survival mode. Um, and at that time, like literally, I remember. I mean, we had built like a dream house, dude. Like this this house that we built. Like, what, you remember MTV Cribs? Mm-hmm. So our house back then could have been on Cribs. I mean, we're talking elevator, three stories, huge terrace down to the waterway, um, infinity pool, gym, Viking, Sub-Zero, you name it, right? Huge office, right? Living like lifestyles of the rich and famous. Now, could I afford it? You know, when I bought it, yes. 
at the time when things were crumbling, crumbling around me? No. So I strategically did a short sell, but luckily I um, had a duplex that I traded for another single family home that was, you know, really nice as well. So I was fortunate to be able to move my family to that home in a gated neighborhood, nice area. Um, and at that time, like, but I remember it was the summer of, I think it was summer of 08 at that house. I'm walking up the, the hill, right, from the waterway and literally felt like I was having a panic attack or a heart attack. They had to call the ambulance, take me to the hospital. Again, thought I was having a heart attack. It was a panic attack. And it was, you know, definitely the, the toughest time in, in my life for sure. So when people say, hey, it's hard now, I'm like, man, this, is, this doesn't hold a candle to 08, 09 for me. So, you know, getting back on your feet, right? It's not how hard you get hit, it's how fast you get back up. Well, I had to get back up and really the only thing I knew how to do is, you know, buy property and sell it. That's what I knew how to do best. <clears throat> and knowing like the foreclosure market, right? Because I'd been foreclosed on, hey, there's stuff coming to the auction. So I went and raised money to support my auction, my new auction habit, which was at that time going to the actual courthouse. It met once a month and the sheriff would auction off properties and I would buy anywhere from two to five properties a month. Market was still falling, by the way. So the people that are worried that, hey, can't make money in a falling market. Well, that's not true either because on those deals, man, we made good money. We, we would, <clears throat> let's say we buy a condo that, and I remember buying this condo that I had pre-sold, right? Like it's crazy. So I buy a condo at auction, probably sold it for 500, but we bought it back at 200. Didn't have to touch it, sold it at like, just call it three. Don't remember the exact numbers, but <clears throat> market's still falling though. So that was an interesting time. Um, so I just started buying foreclosures at, at the courthouse steps. And the funny thing is, is in late 2010, it started, it was already drying up in that area. And my mom was not exactly well. So my wife and I met in Florida. So we said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to go to Florida, um, take care of my mom. And what I, you know, what I did was moved down and became a buyer's agent, man. Um, I had my license. I'd never done like retail real estate. I'd only worked for a developer and <clears throat> sold pre-construction and, you know, kind of done my own thing, but just went on the retail hunt. But as I mentioned on one of your sales calls, the best way to learn the market is by selling retail. Mm -hmm. So you know, you're, you're, you're representing buyers, you're representing sellers. So you really learn the market really, really well. And at that time I was in Broward County, Fort Lauderdale, and it was, you know, 2011, 2012. It's like, okay, it's time to get back, raise some more money, started buying houses again, right? Fixing, flipping, and uh, ended up, you know, meeting my partner at the time who was in mortgage. So, you know, he's very good at scaling businesses as well. And, you know, we created a system at that time to be able to acquire, construct, and dispose of single family assets at a higher level than just your average mom and pop. So we started building out a system inside of QuickBase, which is like an Intuit product, project management system. So we would basically buy from multiple sources. You know, we created a system for auction properties. Broward and Palm Beach counties were two of the hardest hit counties between, you know, and the foreclosure crisis, right? Great recession. So they still have plenty of inventory. So what we would do is we would have guys drive the properties, right? Before the auctions. And these auctions were every day and they were online at this time because we're talking 13, 14, 15, and even in the 16. And I mean, they're still today, they're still online, but you know, at any given time, there were two, 300 properties a day. So we would have our team do all the title searches, 
the week before for all the properties the, the next week. We would have our drivers drive every property and then upload into our system, you know, photographs, how they, you know, how they judge the windows. Was it occupied? Was it unoccupied? Um, condition, you name it, right? And Real quick, for, for listeners, Mike, um, like what were some of the metrics that, I, I, again, I know a lot of listeners are super intrigued on this stuff, on the flipping mm-hmm. and investing. What are some of the metrics that you're searching for? Yeah, so we, we, so number one, we were only buying single family, so single family only. Um, <clears throat> I think in our, I don't know, our five to seven years that we were doing, I can't remember exact time frame, but I think we bought one commercial property and maybe a few condos. When I say a few, like less than less than five. But single family, I think, you know, one time, you know, we had over 50, 60 properties in inventory. So I don't know the exact total number of deals we did, but they were in the multiple hundreds from acquisition to disposition, including projects that were over 500,000 in rehab. So, you know, it was was at scale, but, you know, buying at auction, we would buy from, you know, things like HubZoo and homesearch.com came out at that time. So we were buying from there, but you know, I think what, you know, looking back and really understanding the business, what taught me how to build relationships with realtors was through the investment company because the auctions were great, you know, wholesalers were fine. But to be honest, the, the very best deals we ever got were from realtors. And what we would do with realtors is we would just build solid relationships um, based on trust, based on execution. And we would come up to a guy like you and say, hey, Travis, if you have anything that's off market or distressed, let us be your first call. Um, At that time, I had two asset managers working for me. So if I didn't go out to see the property, one of my asset managers would go out. They would walk the property, give the agent a full price cash cash offer, closing in three to five days. And we would never renegotiate the deal. Uh, Where a lot of investors, fatal flaw is they'll, you know, they're kind of one and done guys. Like, they'll burn the relationship with the realtor for that one deal because they're saying, Hey, like Travis, I'll buy this house for 300. Two days later, they come back. Eh, I'll do it for 285. You've already sold your seller. <clears throat> Makes you look bad. So we really built a, a solid network of, of bird dogs essentially that were feeding us deals on the regular. And so we built that up to scale and it just worked really well. So going back to the lending side, you know, the single family game got just like in 2010 in South Carolina and by 2015, 16, the foreclosure market had been pretty saturated and dried up. And, you know, the, the projects we were doing were averaging anywhere from 200 to 300,000 in rehab. So the time, um, the capital outlay just got to be, juice wasn't worth the squeeze. Um, and I had a gentleman that was working for me that, Felt like, hey, he um, he really liked the business. We started doing some new construction, but again, didn't have a contractor that I truly trusted at the time to be able to execute on the single family side. And just decided, he said, hey, I'm interested in you know potentially buying the business. You know, met with him and you know his dad and their family office, and they decided to purchase the business, and which allowed me to exit to go into mortgage full time in you know 2017. So, gotcha. So since then, 17 to now, you know, built up a, uh, a mortgage team. We've closed over a billion dollars in loans. <clears throat> and because of, you know, being a, a realtor and investor and borrowing quite a bit of money over the years, 
I felt like they gave me a, uh, it continues to give me an edge, um, understanding what clients need, what their short-term needs are versus, you know, long-term goals and what they're trying to accomplish <clears throat> helps me. And then also being able to build relationships, you know, real long-term lasting relationships with the real estate community and other partners, because I think, you know, skill sets like ours can translate in multiple businesses, but, you know, in a business that's tied to real estate being mortgage, <clears throat> I mean, I think I was just perfectly positioned to, to get into the position I'm in today, um, leading a, a mortgage team, you know, into the next, you know, three, five years, who knows what the future holds, but, you know, right now oversee, you know, co-manage over a billion dollars in business. You know, my personal um, direct reports are in the 20s for loan originators and looking to continue to grow that. Um, but happy to be back in Florida, man. So that's that's the story. It's not all it's not all rainbows, man. It's there's no. there's, there's some dark days and, you know, got some uh, got some scars from it, but uh, a lot of good learning lessons. Yeah, 100 100 percent infinite amounts of learning lessons. Yeah, I think it's as I always look back and I always tell like our team and, and as we kind of coach people, it's, it's sometimes the hardest years that can actually be some of the, the most enjoyable. When you look back, you're like, dude, I know I was going through, I was going through it. But I mean, at the same time that you were going through it, you were having like your kiddo, which is like, you know, one of God's biggest gifts on earth. Um, so yeah, I mean, I always look at I, the discrepancy. I always talk about if everything's okay all the time, like, there's no like joy and happiness gaps when shit is hard and then you have a win and it creates that gap between shit and winning in between there is like where joy and happiness come from. I, I, I think, you know what I mean? It's, I would say if you're cold out in the, in nature and you find a warm cabin and you go inside, you're like, Ooh, I'm warm. I'm happy. And you actually have happiness that comes from the warmth of that. Or if you're hungry and you're out in the wilderness and you come across food, you're like happy. Um, yeah, that, my wife, Lisa always says, you know, the greatest uh, seasoning is hunger. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, going back real quick to, to the flipping, because I, I want to I know, because, um, you know, when you're, when you're actually seeking out and, and searching for deals, like where there's certain metrics in terms of like capitalization rate, cost, uh, affordability, the cost versus rental, like what, what metrics, I guess, would you, would you be looking for in a deal? Yeah. I mean, I think each period of time, um, based on like our, the amount of capital available, um, would dictate the, the return on investment that we were seeking. Um, and then the amount of work that was required for the investment. So the time horizon, if the time, obviously if the time horizon, you know, shortens, then, you know, the risk reward can, can tighten. So your ROI, can tighten because we're, we're looking at typically the way our investors analyze deals um, or how we analyze them. We're on a you know yearly basis. So if we were able to flip a house in 60 days um, and our you know return on investment was say 15%, you know you multiply that right. That's a 60% ROI yearly versus doing say like a bigger deal that was going to take say six to eight months where your ROI could have been higher. You know I was. So it's, it's just a risk versus reward. And then every investor has a different strategy based on, you know, cost of capital, you know, timeframe, risk tolerance and skill level, right? I think, you know, the more we did it, you know, we were able to step up our game and the quality of our construction, 
got to be better. So we were able to take on larger projects because we were used to it. We had figured out the kind of the, the game of, you know, what's the, you know, what's the best ROI based on whether it's, you know, putting in a home theater or, you know, you name it, like a tiki hut. I mean, we did some crazy, crazy rehabs. We had a full-time designer. I mean, at peak, I don't know how many people, but I mean, over, I remember Fridays were awful for me because it was just like check cutting day and it was just <clears throat> people would line up outside the office waiting for those checks, man. And it's, you know, we had, we had a full-time accounting person, office manager, um, project manager, gen- general contractor, two asset managers, and I think two or three superintendents and hundreds and hun- like, it was just like over a hundred like subs, individual subcontractors. So that got to be pretty, pretty large, pretty quick. And, you know, definitely taught me to be able to scale. And there's, you know, scaling mortgages is a little easier because everything is a little more controlled. You don't have to go to a house to, to make sure something's done. Everything is, you know, digitized these days. So, you know, that's, you know, carried over well on the, on the mortgage side. I don't know if that answered your question, but. For sure. I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack, um, but let's, let's go to today. So uh, coming out of that in 16, 17, you then went into like loans full-time, started building a mortgage team. Um, you went through it back in like 06, 07, 08, you know, the, the downturn there and made it through. Let's talk about today. I mean, like in the loan world, what, 50%, 50% of LOs or originators have kind of exited in the last 18 months or so. Um, what's going on there? And then how have you shifted and pivoted even from getting in, crushing it to where we're at now? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know what the actual stat is. I think it's even higher today. It might be like 60 to 65% that are that are going to have exit. Maybe that's the stat that's projected towards the, you know, we're in renewal season as we speak. So as, as loan officers, we have to be renewed every year. So I think that... Um, you know, I don't know what the stat will be, but I know that production's down over 60 to 70% across the board. I think that for me, it's just blocking and tackling every day and not trying to do something entirely different, meaning like my approach hasn't necessarily changed. I think my approach, I've gone deeper this year as opposed to wide, right? So yeah. the relationships that are most important to me, I've really tried to make sure those are nurtured better than ever, as opposed to going really wide with relationships. Um, from that standpoint. Cool. I guess. And then from now, how are you moving forward? I mean, on the investment. So, I mean, I'm, now that I'm back in Florida, I'm able to, you know, since I know the Florida market and really understand the investment market here so much better than I did in Colorado, you know, I think I did like, I don't remember three to five, I think fix and flips in a four year time frame. Um, in, in Colorado. So it wasn't even remotely a part of my day-to-day life where now that I'm back in Florida and I have a passion for investing too, it's not, I mean, not that I don't have a passion for mortgage lending, but if there's a different level when you've done, you know, real estate investing for 20 plus years, it's comes kind of ingrained and it's part of your DNA. And it's, I don't know, you, I enjoy that like at a really, really high level. So, you know, I'm definitely working on some deals um, in, 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 in Florida now that, you know, mainly all new construction so we can really, you know, understand our, our, our metrics even better and have partnered with a good builder in Florida to be able to execute at a high level. And then on the mortgage side, it's just a matter of, you know, I'm partnered with a great company in my opinion right now. Um, Cardinal's a fintech company. Um, you know, we're one of the three companies trying to automate the, 
you know, the backend process of a loan. We're about 35% the way there. Um, we hope to be 80% there by the end of next year. So I think as we see rates, you know, trend down, you know, I really feel like, you know, 24 and 25 could be some big years of mortgage when the past 18 months have definitely been years of, of famine and really challenging our um, our business models and how we're doing it. You know, I had, I'd gotten away from personally originating on and off for the last four years. So me actually taking the 1003, me actually doing the, the mortgage consultation, but you know, it's probably the part I like the most, to be honest, is, you know, the one-on-one client interactions of, you know, building out a short-term and a long-term plan for them. You know, if someone really understands what they can do with real estate, it can be by far one of the most powerful life-changing things. And, you know, if they'll embrace, you know, a good plan, you know, everything's like, I mean, there are no limits really when it comes to real estate. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that, that we, we've talked a little bit about offline too, in terms of people getting on the business, on the business too much. And I think, you know, with, with the time where we're at now, like getting back into the business, staying sharp is going to be a super critical time as, as profits and margins just shrink and are compressed that, you know, you need to capitalize on that and not run a big fat team or margins um, so where do you see that the industry kind of headed? We have AI economy. We have an election year next year. Where do you think things are headed for the real estate agents and the lenders in 2024? Well, I mean, I think, I think it's, you know, what worked 20 years ago still works today. I think too many people are looking for the shiny object or like the quick fix. That's why people, you know, I had this conversation earlier. Why do people move brokerages? Why do people move, um, you know, to other mortgage banks or mortgage, you know, I'm going to be a broker now instead of a mortgage banker, right? Yeah. I've been both. I think there are pros and cons to both, but I think that this, I mean, the same principles apply whether you're at EXP or Compass or Caldwell Banker. Sometimes it can be the right move to, to change your environment, but oftentimes what they need to do is double down, triple down, quadruple down on the basics and the fundamentals. And I think too many people are looking for like a magic bullet and they're not willing to put in the work right? Build real relationships, make their calls, do what they say they're going to do and become experts at their craft. Too many people are, you know, they're not paying attention to the details, um, really understanding contracts, really understanding, you know, how to price a home, how to market a home. Um, and on the loan side, really understanding the different product offerings, because typically, you know, we should have solutions. We're not going to have solutions for everybody. Number one, number two, if there is an at-bat, you should understand and be able to find a solution for 80 to 90% of borrowers or be able to correctly move them in the right direction. Um, to answer your question on AI, right, it's a big piece of what we're doing um, in regards to our underwriting technology and, you know, being able to disposition a file in real time um, and meet consumers where they are, whether that be face-to-face, online, on their phone, and people are, you know, instant gratification, right? It's important. But I think, you know, that it's not so much instant gratification today, I think, as it is they want certainty. And the quicker we can provide certainty to the industry, be it the consumer, the realtor, the financial advisor, you know, the better off the consumer will be. So, you know, I don't think things are going to change dramatically this year for us or 2024. Um, I know the topic of the lawsuit has been big with NAR. But again, we've Back in, I remember in 2006, 7, 8 even, everybody was, oh, the internet's going to take over the realtor, right? 
the realtor is stronger today even than maybe 10, 15 years ago. So I, I see that, you know, advising on a one of the biggest purchases of someone's life, whether it be the loan portion of it or the actual physical real estate component, it's going to be tough for AI to take that over, in my opinion. I think you need someone that's in it, you know, and that really understands the economic outlook, understands, you know, the personal financial situation, but creating the right teams, I think now are more important than ever because it is a little more complicated. There's, you know, buyers do have more information. We need to have better information. And, you know, the sign right behind you says it all. We have to, you know, you're, you run an organization called Collab, right? We all need to collaborate and understand that there's so much out there. I think too many people have a lack of an abundant mentality and they're they're worried about what Travis Ferris is doing and they need to be worried about what they're doing. You know, impact their family, impact their clients, impact their organization. And they people need to give more than they take. That's our philosophy. You know, if you give more than you take, then you'll always be successful. That'll get that'll get you through any time. So just give For more sure. than you take. Yeah. I just it, it just popped up in my head too when you were talking about that too. Like at the end of the day, the internet just educated the consumer. And the one thing I think a lot of people need to do is why are they worried about having more intelligent, smarter consumers? I love working with intelligent buyers or sellers. Like I don't, I don't, I don't want to work with, uh, I don't, I don't want to say like not first time home buyers, but it's more of a, I want an educated consumer that you can, again, if, Capitalization rate. It, you, you don't even talk about cap rates and things like that with 90% of the, the shoppers out there. I love talking about that stuff. So at the end of the day, if you're listening to this and like, why are you scared that you're you're talking and communicating and helping more intelligent end user? Like that that's a mirror question if that's the fact. At the end of the day, AI is is only gonna help you become more powerful if you do the work. There's work to be had and you know, I think we talked about it in our last show too, to where, you know, you won't be replaced same way that agents weren't replaced by the internet. Old agents that didn't get on the internet got replaced by agents on the internet. Same thing today. Like you're not going to get replaced by AI. You will be replaced by agents that actually know how to utilize AI. And then maybe yeah. in 20 years, then they'll get replaced by AI, but that's 20 I, years down the road. I think <laughs> you hit the right on the head though. I mean, you have to embrace technology. I mean, for sure, right? Like, I mean, we're able to do things like Zoom, right? It's not as good as face-to-face, -face, but it's like right there. You know, it's just a small gap. And the amount of coverage and the net that we can cast today versus what we could cast, say, even three, five years ago has totally changed the landscape. It allows us to scale and provide more value to more people at a larger level. And those that embrace, like you said, embrace that tech, Versus saying, hey, like, yeah, it might, it's not going to replace us, but, you know, if we can scale faster, better, stronger together, then the ones that are just going to say, hey, doing the same thing over and over is insanity, right? Yeah. Shit's cool with technology. Embrace it. Literally, you're in Florida right now. I'm in Colorado. I'll see you next week. I'm flying out there, get some face to face. But like, we're recording a podcast in two different states online. Like, I can't remember what comedian he was talking about it, that he was basically like, people get on airplanes and they like bitch and complain, but he's like, you're flying. You are flying. You're sitting in a chair flying. Like it's so funny, but it's so true to where it's like, I mean, things are cool. Like they get, they definitely can cross some boundaries. All right, Mike. So 
to walk me through this. So a, what got you through the hard times? And then like in the last 20 years, you've, you've definitely endeavored in just different journeys, like, and you've persevered, you pushed through, you've been knocked down, you got back up. What would be like your biggest failure or like the most painful moment that you were like went through, dealt with, pushed through to be to this point? And again, for the listeners that don't realize, I mean, like you're crushing it at a high level. You're running mortgage at a high level. You're still developing and investing and flipping homes like at a high level to where you're at a, a high another level that I'm trying to get to. Um, but what was the time where you like, again, hardest moment, biggest failure? What, what was it? How did you deal with it? How did you get through it? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, probably the hardest, like business wise was definitely, you know, the 08, 09, but how I got through it was by not feeling sorry for myself and, you know, finding another way to provide for my family. In other words, you know, not looking this, blaming the situation and just saying, Hey, like, you know, there's nothing I can do to get out of this mess. It was, you know, I think being resourceful is probably one of my best traits, right? Like finding that edge. I'm very good at, you know, finding finding a way to provide for my family that suits my skill sets and my strengths, right? I think too many people are looking at other people and what they're doing as opposed to finding what their true, unique, God-given talents are and then going all in on that, right? Like I'm only good at a few things versus, you know, I'm not, you say, yeah, I've done a lot, but it's all in the same space, like real estate, mortgage and investing. I mean, we're talking, you know, they're all intertwined and they rely on each other. I think that's, you know, that's my big, you know, probably biggest failure was, you know, just getting hit in the mouth in 08, 09 and, you know, not understanding that, hey, you know, that things could fall apart, right? Like, and then it's just getting back up. Mm-hmm. They're going to fall apart. That's yeah. That's what people need to realize um, that I am, dude. I, and again, I've, I've, I've had my own failures over the last, you know, 10, 15 years of doing this. And, and I'm still going through the failures. You know, as Mike Tyson says, everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the face or punched in the mouth. And it's super true. Um, but yeah, and I think the, what I'm seeing now, and again, I've, I've had some massive failures myself, Sometimes it's 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 again another statement of uh, sometimes God closes one door to open another. Like the closing the door is a failure. Like that's what people aren't aren't understanding in that is like that's a failure. Um, when when God closes the door, that means something didn't work out. That was what you right. thought. And you know I, I've in the last year or so I've been running teams for you know ten plus years too. Um, last year I've human human behavior human elements um, have totally changed with technology, economy, what's going on in the world today. Um, but it's if things were good and, and we we're talking about it at the beginning, if everything's okay all the time, you're not gonna you're not gonna make changes and do anything different. Everything's okay. Why I'm in a warm house with a with a buffet. Why would I ever leave that house? At the end of the day, sometimes someone's got to cut the power or take the food away for you to like leave that to get to the better house. And that's what I, one of the things that I'm, I'm catching a lot now is allowing the failures that they're God's plans. And I always, I always refer to it as God's cul-de-sacs. Mm. Um, I failed out my first year at University of Kentucky, basically. And it drove me to be like, well, shit, you know, that didn't work out like I thought. What am I going to do? Oh, I still have a full ride scholarship to Hawaii. Hey, HPU, am I still accepted? Yes, you are. And two weeks later, I flew out, I flew out there. 
And without that failure, I would have never ended up in Hawaii, which meant I wouldn't have ever met Nisa, which meant I, you know, you know what I mean? Like, so sorry, that was a long rant, but it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's applicable, man. I mean, it's, you know, you can look at them as failures or you can look at them as blessings, uh, blessings in disguise. I mean, it definitely, you, you, you truly learn more when you fail than when you succeed. There's just no doubt about that. It's no one's going to, maybe somebody's got a, you know, situation, but in my life, it's always the failures have taught me the most. Not that we don't sometimes repeat mistakes, but the key is, you know, fail smaller the next time, maybe. Um, Because again, there'll be more failures. I'll have more for sure. Um, You know, my hope and my prayer is that they're not similar to to 0809 and um, try to make better decisions about the people you surround yourself with and the, you know, the business deals that you do. And you know, you try to have a better quality of life and again, learn from the mistakes as opposed to just saying, hey, learn to take personal accountability. For sure. One of the things that came, really came up and a huge theme I've heard you talk about is relationships. You know, you've said it time and time again throughout the episode, um, you know, the importance of them, like explain the importance of relationships and then we'll kind of start wrapping this up um, to where we want to hear like your biggest pearl or suggestion for for any listeners in business right, right now. Yeah, I mean, um Relationships are they're the currency of, of business and of life, right? I think that, you know, so many times we talk about money, right? We always, how much money, how much money? But, you know, I don't think we put enough value as a society and as a, even our, our business in and of itself, right? Like the real estate industry as a whole, you know, it's dog eat dog. It's, you know, what have you done for me lately versus, you know, who can I pour into? Who can I either a mentor or be a mentee to, and it's building people up, right? And it's, you know, good times and bad times, man. I mean, it's, you know, obviously the bad times teach you a little bit more about who your true friends are, who the real relationships, like who are the deep-seated relationships, who are ride or die. Um, I've definitely learned that this year, you know, in, in a lot of good ways. And I'm, you know, but the funny thing is, you know, the, the bad ones will always weed themselves out of your life one way or the other. And typically that's, that's a blessing too, right? But relationships, I, again, they're the currency for me, man. They're, they're what drives me. They're what gets me up in the morning. Um, you know, the relationship with my wife, my daughter, um, my referral partners, my own personal team, um, all the people that, you know, I do business with, I, I consider friends as well. Not just, you know, it's not just business for me. You know, I want to know what, you know, what's really going on in people's lives as opposed to, you know, it's not a transaction, right? Transactions are awesome. I mean, that's, they're, they're what, you know, feed our families, right? But it's the relationship that you build over time and, you know, you get to reflect back on the, the good, the bad, the ugly, and, you know, those, those long lasting ones, man, they're just worth, you can't put a price tag on, on, on the friendships that you build in the industry. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful to have, a, have quite a few. For sure. Cool. Well, for all of our listeners in business, whether you're in the industry, real estate, loans, financial advising, insurance, whatever, um, what would be like your biggest pearl if you're saying, if you're starting or if you're here, do this? What's that biggest suggestion? I think the biggest one is, you know, don't be afraid to fail. I think too many people are afraid of how they look on social, how they look, um, you know, in the community, let's say how they look to their wives, their kids. But, you know, I know my daughter has learned quite a lot about, you know, not only success, but failure, you know, through watching me over the years. Um, You know, don't be afraid to fail. 
I, like don't be able to fail often, right? Just every time you fail, understand, kind of recalibrate, debrief, and understand, you know, really what happened, why it happened, how could you do better next time? Um, it's like the baseball analogy, man. I mean, Babe Ruth struck out more times than he hit home runs, right? Like it's, that's the biggest thing, man. Just don't be afraid to fail. I mean, just keep, the key is just get back up mm -hmm. after you fail and don't take it too personally. Because in the end, no one's going to remember that, you know, Mike Benton, you know, lost it all in 08 or 09. No one's going to remember, you know, that he flipped a couple bad houses, you know, things like that. They're going to, people want to know your heart and they want to know, you know, that you got back up. People don't probably don't even remember 08 or 09, most people. I'd say like, Mostly my friends probably won't even remember it, you know? So it's, you know, when you're out there and you're, whether you're new or you're like, even I think, you know, guys that are in our position, we can't be afraid either to fail. I'm not even still, I take chances still. I'm a, you know, I think most of the best entrepreneurs are all risk takers, man. It's yep. the best ones. Take risk. Don't be afraid to fail and give more than you take. Those are my parting thoughts. There it is. Uh, day, I mean, day trading, when you go do, go through day trading, you learn minimize risk, maximize reward. I mean, that's, and that's, you're going to fail. So, I mean, to caveat what Mike said with the pearl, it's like, if you're doing anything in business, if you're doing anything worthwhile in life, you will fail. Like you're going to fail. And it's about, you know, get knocked down. I'll tell, I'll tell you what, you always hear get knocked down and, and get back up. In the last year, I actually heard someone who said it a little bit differently. And, and I actually really appreciated it to where they said, you know what people do when they get knocked down and everyone's like, get back up. And they're like, well, actually the champions will lay there for a second and they'll say, what got me here? What got me knocked down? And I was like, huh, I, I actually, I, I love that. Cause yeah, I mean, get knocked down, evaluate what you did, what can you do better? And then absolutely get back up. So you're going to fail. You're going to go through it. Um, don't burn bridges, don't burn relationships, take care of your investors, all those things. So, well, Mike, man, thank you so much. I look forward to our episode number two that we're going to have later on, dive into some other things. I'll be out to Florida. We're going to flip a house in five days. <laughs> Woo! I'm just kidding. It. Well, I'm not really kidding, but all right, guys. Um, Mike Benton, where can people find you? Social media, website, what is it? Yeah, Mike G. Benton on uh, Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter. Or X now, Mike you X. Follow the Boom. story on X. X is, X is the next hot Awesome. Player, man. There you go. Well, there you go, listeners. Go on, follow him. Take a look at what he's doing. Um, as always, coffee's remained for closers. Thank you for tuning in, guys. Look forward to talking to you next time. Enjoyed this episode of Coffee for Closers? Subscribe to the show anywhere you find podcasts. And follow Collab Agents on social at Collab Agents.